0: Hi, welcome to Love, Girls, in Quiet Rooms, a podcast about current issues in libraries, museums, and archives. I'm Courtney. And I'm Catherine. And today we're going to be talking about what the library and museum world will look like in this upcoming presidential administration.
1: And we're only really going to be talking about how a Trump presidency may affect museums and libraries. We're not really going to be speculating on his other policies or what type of president he's going to be.
0: And also keep in mind that we're not political experts. We just have done a lot of research and have been paying attention to what's been said by professionals in our both of our fields.
1: Right. We're talking about this because this is a podcast about current issues in our fields. And um, this is a discussion that a lot of our, both of our colleagues have been having. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also, um, just as like sort of a, a caveat, we're recording this on um, Sunday the 29th, so we're a little over a week into the Trump administration. Yes. Um, so, yeah, a lot of this may be speculative. Um, but one thing that I know for sure when talking about how libraries are being affected right now is that so many books are getting checked out right now. Yay. It's kind of heartening. Even in um, times of really big political confusion, we've gotten a lot of requests for um, books about politics, books about protest, movements, um, nobody can find a copy of 1984 anywhere in the world.
0: <laughs> Amazon's been sold out. When you say you've been getting requests, are you talking about at your library yeah, specifically? Mm-hmm, okay. Absolutely.
1: Um, I mean, like I've seen on the internet, uh, about like Amazon selling out of certain books mm-hmm. like 1984, but, um, our library has been getting a lot of, uh, similar requests and I've also been Really interested to see some of the books that we've been purchasing since uh, Trump was elected. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's maybe something we can talk about later. But something that happened immediately after he was elected uh, was that the American Library Association, the ALA, which is the oldest and largest library association in the world, put out a letter from their Washington office, which um, they do lobby Congress and uh, file... Amici Curie briefs on cases related to libraries. And
0: what is Amici Curie? So
1: they're friend of the court briefs. So when they're sort of like cases that come up, um, they'll give information. Oh, okay. um, From their Washington office. So this letter that came out right after the election, I think it was the day after, was quoting the ALA's president, who is Julie Todaro. And um, she said... The American Library Association is dedicated to helping all of our nation's elected leaders identify solutions to the challenges our country faces. We're ready to work with President-elect Trump, his transition team, incoming administration members of Congress to to bring more economic opportunity to all Americans and advance other goals we have in common. The U.S. library community looks forward to strengthening our partnerships with federal agencies, the new administration, and other key stakeholders in all levels of government. So, immediately after that happened, there was a huge backlash, and the statement has since been rescinded and archived, which also pulled down the entire comments section. The comments were archived? I don't think so. Like, not that I could find. Or at least, in being archived, the comments were closed. So that's a little problematic. Yeah. Yikes.
0: So where was the backlash coming from?
1: So a lot of librarians felt that Trump's campaign and his cabinet selections were kind of contrary to the mission of the ALA. Libraries historically have like an inclusive open access mission and uh, I think this statement made a lot of people feel really unsupported by the ALA. One of the articles that I read was from Emily Drabinski, um, and I'll link to it in the show notes, but she's the coordinator of library instruction at LIU Brooklyn, and she said, I know that libraries are bastions of whiteness, wedded to the ideas of neutrality, etc. In this moment, ALA is doubling down on the worst of our profession, taking actions that extend the current political horror show, and this is not okay. I think
0: I'll talk about it later, but, like, neutrality doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Like, by being silent, you're making a choice. Exactly. And um,
1: I I think a lot of people felt that that statement was really pandering, and the way that it was put out um, and then immediately, like, rescinded and archived and kind of, like, scrubbed a little bit Mm -hmm. um, was really concerning to a lot of people. The ALA eventually came out with a response that talked about, let's see, what did they say? The ALA is very concerned about the role of our nation's libraries under this new administration, both at the legislative level as well as at the state and local level. Um, That concern should never eclipse our commitment to our members to defending our core values and advancing our policy positions. So that's kind of like taking responsibility for Mm -hmm. the statement, but it seems a little vague and problematic to me.
0: It kind of seems like they're trying to appease a lot of people. Yeah,
1: it's, it's kind of complicated because the Library Services and Technologies Act and the Institute of Museum and Library Services are the two major sources of federal funding that libraries get. And they have to be periodically renewed by Congress. So the main focus of the Washington office um, of the ALA is lobbying Congress
0: hmm.
1: to kind of keep those things in place. So it's kind of this weird conflict between librarians who feel like um, a lot of the campaign ran contrary to our mission Uh and um, sort of the more administrative level, who wants to protect uh, the funding and, Uh and sort of position that libraries
0: have already. I don't know, that's kind of scary because like we're going to talk about later, that funding can just be taken away. Yeah. And libraries are so important and museums are so important. And I'm not, we're like, we're not just saying this because these are our fields. Like, right. We really believe in these institutions and to have to kind of almost pander, I guess, yeah. to it's whatever line... administration it is. Right. It's a, get... It's a hard line to walk.
1: Yeah. And I feel like it's a really complicated issue. It's hard to know how to feel. Mm -hmm. So in talking about that mission uh, of sort of protecting the privacy of patrons, uh, we kind of come to a discussion that's been sort of reignited or maybe just never went away in libraries. And that's what happened after 9-11 with the Patriot Act. So the ALA's formal statement uh, on privacy is that the right to privacy is the right to open inquiry without having the subject of one's interest examined or scrutinized by others. So privacy is really important in libraries. Uh, We try and protect patron information as much as possible. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And librarians have done a lot, the ALA included, uh, I don't want to just, like, discredit them Mm -hmm. uh, for one statement they made. They've done a lot to fight what they see as sort of, like, intrusive policies like the Patriot Act. Uh, some individual librarians, like Allison Macrina, developed programs to kind of teach patrons how to keep their information as private as possible, like okay. using HTTPS uh, to deliver library services and information resources and just kind of like relating information surveillance to over-policing and racialized surveillance in general, which hmm. I know sort of like Russian hacking and WikiLeaks and things like that have been in the news a lot since Mm -hmm. Trump became president. I mean, not that they weren't during the campaign, but it's just kind of increased. And so web security and and individual privacy uh, remains really important to libraries and librarians. Mm -hmm. And so kind of the last point I want to make about uh, the role of libraries and and administration, uh, such as the one that we're facing now, is that... Historically, during conservative administrations, funding for social services is decreased. So a greater demand is placed on libraries to fill those roles. Right? Like, homelessness Mm. um, is still an issue in this country, but with decreased funding for services for homeless people, a lot of those roles end up falling to librarians rather than people who are trained in that field necessarily or, or...
0: sort of social services where one issue is their main focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I can definitely see that being a problem because you get, I mean, like, you, libraries are already, like, have have funding issues and, like, you're already doing a job and on top of it you've got all of these other people coming in, like, expecting or hoping for help with taxes, help
1: yeah. with... Um, I mean, I did a research project about libraries and assisting in domestic violence situations and things like that. Like
0: mm-hmm.
1: maybe things that you don't go to library school thinking you're going to end up dealing with, but I think that it's important for you know people in my field to remember that like this is the mission of the library mm-hmm. to connect people with the resources that they need and and there will be increased demands, but I think that libraries are doing good work to find ways of shifting resources to meet these demands. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I know I've been talking a lot, but we don't give archives a lot of love on this podcast. We don't. We, we don't. never talk about archives. They're so important. I know. Um and I think we're going to start talking about them a little bit more, especially because I'm in archives class right now.
0: Yes. <laughs> um
1: <laughs> but I am just going to briefly mention some things that archives are already doing uh, or maybe doing in this administration. And one of those things is curating movements, and I know we're going to talk a lot more about this in future episodes,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but um, a lot of archives and information institutions have kind of reached out to their communities saying, like, if you are creating any ephemera in these protests or movements, please donate it to us. We'll archive it. I'm just sort of keeping track of that
0: history that's happening right now,
1: and I think that's so cool and important.
0: It's so cool. I, I mean... Rapid response collecting is, I think, something that needs to be talked about a lot more, because, I mean, these these objects are going to be important. I mean, they're important now, but they're going to be really important in the future when people are doing research on these on these movements. Yeah, and, and just on, like, sort of the atmosphere of today in general.
1: And I know we're going to dedicate a whole episode to rapid response collecting soon. Yes. So... Archives, we haven't forgotten about you. Oh, and I just wanted to, like, mention that I feel really bad for anyone who has to complete all those Freedom of Information Act requests (laughs) that I'm sure (laughs) they're getting. Just, like, shout out to that person. I remember when Mitt Romney ran for president, uh, I was working in Utah. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't working. I was working in special collections, but I wasn't working in archives. And I just remember they had to pull, like, every single document about the 2002 Winter Olympics that we had, which was like a warehouse of documents because people really (laughs) wanted to comb through it to see, like, okay, what can we find out about, you know, Mitt Romney's involvement in the Olympics? Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: And then I did help move it back to that warehouse, and I was like, why? (laughs) Um,
0: So shout out to all the people who are working really hard in government archives right now. So this is kind of something that falls in between both of our fields, we're going to be talking about funding. Yes. Um, <laughs> Always the problem. <laughs> yes. it's And I don't think that's ever going to be an issue that'll be solved. Ugh, I wish, but no, yeah. it's not. <laughs> so, in 2014, Paul Ryan introduced a budget proposal that suggested removing federal funding to the Institute of Museum and Library Services, as well as the National Endowment for the Arts, or the NEA, and the National Endowment for the Humanities, or the NEH, in addition to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That was in 2014. Yep. And obviously it didn't pass. Nope. So there's an article in The Hill that says that the Trump team is going to completely eliminate the NEA, the NEH, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And together, those three things make up 0.02% of the budget.
1: Yeah, the NEA and the NEH are, like, even less. Like
0: It's, like, 0.007%. Yeah,
1: it's mostly those jerks in public broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> what up and That's God? where all the,
0: <laughs> the money is going.
1: Yeah, all that money, all 0.02% of the budget. Yeah. When we had started planning out this episode, we had talked about how Paul Ryan doing that made it possible that Trump might bring this up. Mm-hmm. And within the first couple of days of his presidency, it's already... This article
0: came out and... Yeah. It's...
1: And it's being widely reported. Elsewhere. Oh, yeah. We did our research. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> Not fake news. Um, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> yeah. 40% of the activities the NEA supports take place in high-poverty neighborhoods, according to Fortune. That, you know, by cutting the, the funding, um, you're going to get less... Cultural projects that happen in these areas, which is a problem,
1: right? Because maybe in in sort of neighborhoods with a little bit less poverty, those the residents of those neighborhoods are being exposed to sort of like arts, culture, and hum- humanities exactly through other means. But eliminating this funding in areas where it does so much good, like high need areas.
0: Yeah, is really troubling, I think. And, you know, I think people think like, okay, what's like a painting going to do to help solve poverty? But there's this movement called socially engaged art where you kind of address a need in a neighborhood or in a group of people and use art and art-related projects to kind of solve that. So A good example in Chicago is Theaster Gates, Mm -hmm. who is, I think he's a potter by trade, but he has bought up um, several buildings on the south side of Chicago and turned them into community centers. So the big one that he did was the Stony Island Bank. Oh yeah, the The Stony Stony Island Island Arts Arts Bank. Bank. So there's a whole um, library of bound issues of Ebony yep. magazine mm-hmm. and there's um, a huge record collection and they do art performances and I just, I don't, it it creates community pride and I just don't understand why people think that people in high poverty situations don't deserve art and culture in their lives. Yeah, art, it's culture, ridiculous. and literature. And, and really... Like, if you just want to boil it down, libraries and museums employ a lot of people. They do. And it, it, they bring a lot of tourism into places, and... Right. It, it They're profitable.
1: Right. Anytime anyone comes to visit me, they're like, okay, which museums are we
0: going to? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I went to the field twice this summer. Oh, the field is so good. I know. I love In, the field. Well, it's mostly good. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about that later. For sure. Um... So other ways that I think Trump may affect museums and a lot of these things I wrote like three weeks ago
1: because I I was trying
0: to be prepared. Can I read what you wrote in our notes? Yes.
1: (laughs) She wrote, I wrote all this like three weeks ago and now it's all coming true. I am a prophet.
0: Unfortunately, this is something I'm not happy about. Sad laughter. (laughs) So there's going to be, I think a cultural backlash. hmm And this is evidenced by some things that have happened in the past. So, I think that there's going to be the argument that taxpayer dollars shouldn't go towards something controversial. Okay. Scare quotes. An example is, I think it was 1989. So, first George Bush, right? Yep. The Cincinnati Contemporary Arts Center was put on trial for obscenity because they used NEA money to put on a Robert Maplethorpe show. And in the show, there were a few photographs that depicted gay S&M culture. Oh my goodness. And they were brought to court for that. Ugh, I... And people were saying, like, I don't want my taxpayer dollars to go so- towards something controversial.
1: Okay. Which, so, like... War and, you
0: know... Yeah. Other controversial things that our tax dollars go towards. But that's... I
1: mean... It's scary. It is scary, and not least because 1989 isn't that long ago? It No. It seems troubling, like, it seems really troubling now that sort of depicting gay S&M culture would be that controversial, I guess? I feel like, I mean... In in some ways, we feel like we've come really far, and we really haven't.
0: No. If you look at um, the uh, Leather Archives and Museum Mm -hmm. here in Chicago, in Rogers Park... There was a huge outcry by the community saying, we don't want this near our kids or whatever. And it's like, it's in a building. Right. And this is a subculture that deserves... Documentation. Yeah. And a space. Yeah, absolutely. Ugh. Um, So now that the NEA and NEH might be gone, uh, just kind of what we talked about earlier, um, they're are going to be less, you know, larger exhibitions, mm-hmm. and those larger exhibitions are only going to be concentrated in large museums and metropolitan areas, uh, because smaller museums may have a difficult time raising money to get exhibitions to come to them, right. or to put them on, like the Jane Addams Whole House Museum just had an NEH grant to document, oh, I can't remember what it was, but something on, something to do with the west side of Chicago. Okay documenting the neighborhoods there and telling their stories, which are not very often told because, again, high-poverty area, Mm -hmm. and the Hull House Museum is a very small museum. It's housed within the uh, Mm -hmm. University of Illinois at Chicago, but it's still a very small museum. So that's
1: really concerning as well because, like, I think it's easy for us to get a little, like, Mm metropolitan-centric because we've both been living in Chicago for a while, Um, But we don't really think about these smaller museums that might have to shut their doors where it's the only museum or library for miles, Yeah, making
0: this less accessible to people in rural areas. Yeah, I think that's something that is a little bit of an oversight on my part, is that I always think, when I think museums, I think of museums in cities. Yeah, absolutely. And there are small museums, I mean, there are... A ridiculous amount of museums
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. in the United States, and some of those exist in rural areas. Yeah, my uh, my boss was just showing me some pictures
1: from her trip to Alaska, and mm-hmm. um, in these like really really remote villages, they have small museums and small libraries, and those are things that are at risk. But they also bring in, like you said earlier, a lot of tourism, and they help educate and enrich the community that they serve. Right.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, funding is huge, and... (laughs) That's why we spend so much time talking about it and
1: worrying about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, the next point is probably uh, the biggest one that I was surprised came true so fast, Mm. which is the scientific backlash. So, I thought that conservatism may have a role in what type of research is done. (laughs) Because looking at the official Republican Party platform, there's nothing about climate change. They actually, like, said that they wanted to strip back some of the EPA um, jurisdiction and rulings and... You are a damn prophet. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, GOP rejected the Paris Agreement. And then if you look at Canada under Stephen Harper... Mm He did something similar to what Trump is trying to do now, which is kind of censor uh, scientists that talk about matters of the environment, so the ocean and climate change. Oh, wow. And scientific libraries were closed. Uh, scientific journals were just thrown away. Oh, my goodness. Um, and right now we're seeing the Trump administration already begin this. Yeah, flat out tell the national parks and EPA that they can't give out any information. They they're banned from tweeting like ridiculous stuff. But in response to that, I've noticed a few things. So obviously everyone knows about the rogue national parks accounts, which are awesome. Yeah. But I've noticed, you know, the field museum, they're not a federal, they're not the Smithsonian, but Mm -hmm. they were tweeting out climate change facts at one point. Um, and then the rogue accounts are tweeting out information about climate change, um, the Keystone and Dakota Access Pipelines, uh, the Badlands National Park was tweeting about um, Japanese internment, um, That's or funny. excuse me, Japanese American internment. Yeah. Yeah. So there's people fighting against this. And the Smithsonian has also said flat out, like, we're going to go where the research brings us. So we're going to continue this research on um, climate change. But this is possibly going to be affected by the Holman Rule. So okay. I don't know if you've heard about this. No,
1: tell me about this.
0: So the Holman Rule says that you can lower a government employee's salary to a dollar, <laughs> which okay. is effectively firing them without firing them. So it protects you from like,
1: being sued for wrongful termination, but also makes it impossible for them to keep their job?
0: Pretty much. Wow. So I don't know. I I can't figure out exactly, like but how it would be enforced. You know. Yeah. If it's just a rule, kind of like the Thurmond rule that the Republicans pulled out and we're using. Do you remember that? Was that when they tried to shut down the government, or was this? The no, the Thurmond rule says that. Um, a president is in their last six months of their oh, term. They can't oh. nominate Supreme Court justices. Oh my goodness. And they pull that out like a year before his term was up. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Let's move on from this. Yeah. So Sorry. <laughs> um I don't know how the Holman rule will come into play, but that's something that I've seen a lot. Yeah. Kind of just popping up everywhere.
1: That's scary, especially because like these people who are going rogue, like sort of creating these. I can't believe that the Twitter is like the main focus of. Our... I know. Anyway, um, um, who are making these like rogue Twitter accounts? They're really putting their jobs at risk.
0: They are, and that's uh, that's you something know. that we need to acknowledge. Right, right. Re- whether you agree
1: or disagree, that's that's something that we need to be talking about is that it's possible for these people to lose their jobs over tweeting out scientific fact
0: Mm -hmm. and trying to you know do their jobs of educating people yeah so uh the next point we kind of already talked about um which is i think there's going to be a push for smaller government Mm -hmm. so leaving things up to the states because that's a very conservative point of view yeah I think with smaller government, we're going to see less federal funding Mm -hmm. and more state funding Mm -hmm. if that exists, but that's going to really affect the capacity for museums and libraries to do their jobs. Absolutely. So I made just a few points about why, um, museums are really important. And obviously we talked about why libraries are important. Yeah. So, um, museums employ hundreds of thousands of people, bring in tourism, um, they create a community place that people can be proud of. Absolutely. Uh, they conduct research that leads to a better understanding of the sciences and the natural world. And they preserve specimens and preserve our biggest export, which is culture. Yeah, absolutely. Which is something that you brought up that I hadn't even thought about.
1: Yeah, it's true. Our, our biggest export is our culture. American culture is kind of, like, known and seen throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and museums not only... Like sort of curate that, they also
0: promote it. Museums are a big advocate for our culture and spreading our culture and educating people about our culture. Right. And I think
1: a lot of people see museums as a little bit stodgy, you know? Because yeah. you think of a museum, you think of an old dusty building. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we're trying to change in doing this podcast. Like, museums are actually highly revolutionary
0: and, and yes. really cool.
1: So, I mean, they're really, really important.
0: And my last point, which is or like the last reason why museums are important is just because free time is important and like yeah people deserve access to culture they they deserve access to free time and you know uh leisure time and what what am i trying to say no low Um, cost sort of
1: um Fun Exposure things to do. To fun. And, like, reading is fun. Going to a museum
0: is fun. Going to a library is fun. And, and right now, a lot of people aren't able to do that because of the cost. And I think if they're... And the cost is so high because they're trying to keep up with their expectations. Right. But also the decrease in funding. Mm-hmm. So hey, more libraries, libraries are
1: still free, just saying. Yes.
0: Yes, just they are. <laughs> what are you gonna do about that museums? <laughs> I wish museums were free. They should be. I know, be but free. some are. Some are. Some are, yes. Yeah.
1: And so I think that we've talked about a lot of things today. Uh just like ways that things <laughs> might get worse, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't really do too much research about how things could get better, but we did talk about a lot of things that Libraries, museums, and archives are doing to respond, yes. and so I think a big question that I've been asking myself, my professors have been asking us students, my coworkers have been asking each other is, what do we do to prepare? We know this is going to happen, or we can predict that some of this may happen, mm-hmm. right? And we need to go forward. So when we're talking about preparations, we both want to give sort of a big caveat, which is that we're white, college-educated, ed- cisgender, middle-class women who live in the city. Yes. And libraries and museums are, pl- are they should be places of diversity. And when we talk about solutions, hacks, preparations for the future, we just kind of want to honor the fact that we might not always be the best people to talk about every issue that different institutions face. You Absolutely. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like I guess I just want to say that we we recognize that we're coming at this from a place of privilege, like yes. like we do with everything. You yes. know, all the privileges I listed. Um, but <laughs> white women have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Uh, we've got we've got some some wrongs to right. Uh, so we're going to talk about some of our overall takeaways um, from our research and
0: and the discussions we've been having with our colleagues. Do you want to start? Sure. Um, so I've noticed with the people that I kind of follow on Twitter mm-hmm. um, that there is and continues to be a push for diversity within your institution. So that means um, making marginalized people, so people of color, uh, people in the LGBTQ plus community. Disabled people, immigrants, refugees feel welcome in your institution. Yeah. But also, more importantly, is to hire diversely and not just white women because white women are the like benefactors of the
1: beneficiaries.
0: Yeah. Of affirmative of. action. <laughs> Other things establish fair labor practices, try <laughs> to avoid um, unpaid internships, try to, you know, compensate people as much as you can for yeah. their labor. Because that's going to affect who comes to your museum wanting to work there. I never even thought about that.
1: I mean, like, I've thought about why internships might be bad, but I, I've never thought of that in this context. That's
0: really yeah, smart. Um, and just ensure that your communities are the best that they can be. And what I've been doing is kind of looking at local museums in Chicago mm-hmm. um, and what they're doing. So at the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Chicago, they had a self-care workshop. They called it Self-Care as Warfare. <laughs> and they had activist speakers. And one of the speakers included a 12-year-old student named um, A'shaun Johnson, oh who God. was instrumental in getting his school, Marcus Garvey Elementary, off the Chicago Public School closure list and was also a speaker at the 50th anniversary March on Washington.
1: I'm going to link to that video in the show notes because it's incredible. Yeah. Courtney sent it to me last week and I cried.
0: <laughs> I cried too. So I just needed to share it with someone and have yeah. someone else cry. And
1: now we're going to make all of you cry too. He was what, what a cool kid.
0: Yeah. And then Gallery 400 at UIC, University of Illinois at um, hosted a protest art-making workshop on the day of the inauguration that I went to. And you Which, made me
1: a really cool button.
0: Yes, I did. <laughs> Which I'm going to donate to the li- uh, the Newberry Library's archive. Yay. Yeah. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jane Addams Whole House Museum at UIC had a workshop in banner-making, protest banner-making, that is, and lots of action at UIC's cultural centers happened. All the cultural centers had some... Um, event that happened so to cool. help people kind of cope with that, and I think cultural centers are kind of adjacent to oh, museums. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll count them. <laughs> and the last thing I want to say is that uh, museums are not neutral, and now is not the time to be neutral, because there's no such thing as as neutrality, and silence is a choice. Like we said before, um, there's a really great tweet in the museum ed chat conversation that happened a few days ago. So, um, this woman, Andrea, who's at let's go to museums said, museums need to stop with the shoulda, coulda, woulda status quo. This is not how they change or become catalysts for change, which I think is a really great statement.
1: Yeah. That's really moving. And just like such a good sort of mission. Mm -hmm. Um, and and I think the same goes for libraries. I mean, they're n- not neutral spaces. Um, and they never have been, and they never should be. My sort of overall takeaway... I'm going to keep it short because I think we've gone pretty long. Libraries, museums, archives, no matter what institution, um, you just need to serve your specific community. Like, listen and respond to the needs coming from your community. Yes. Um, whether or not you feel supported nationally there are ways to organize locally um, and, and we should be prepared to do more with less mm-hmm. you know <laughs> we've said it once we've said it a thousand times funding is a big issue but you know especially coming from uh, a place of of privilege of um, relative privilege I, I think it's important that we we listen to what people are asking for yes so keeping lists of reference re- requests that you're getting over and over again like where do I go to find therapy or where, for cheap or like where do I go to find you know this kind of resource or that kind of resource build your programs around that like really make it easy for people who are going to have it the hardest right now
0: and when it comes down to it our both of our institutions are about the community absolutely they're not about us right we are there to serve the community
1: yeah um and I think that's really really important to always keep in mind Um, So we've had a pretty serious conversation tonight, and we'd love to keep having this conversation with any of our listeners.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: So um, you can find all of our future episodes on iTunes, where we're Loud Girls in Quiet Rooms, and um, we'd love it if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed. But we also really want you to follow us on Twitter, at lgqrpod, and email us at lgqrpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash lgqrpod. Leave us any questions, comments, concerns. I mean, if you don't agree with us, that's absolutely fine. If you have better ways of preparing for this or if you're, you know, concerned about anything, let us know. Absolutely come to us. Um, so thank you guys so much. I've been Katherine. I'm Courtney. And thanks so much.
0: Okay. Howdy, howdy, howdy. <laughs> What? <laughs> That's from It's Always Sunny. When Dee does stand up, she goes up and is like breathing into the mic and goes, Howdy, howdy, howdy. How's everyone doing tonight? Why don't we start like that every
1: time? <laughs>